Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. everybody and thank you for joining us for imagine this today we are going to be talking about a pretty exciting play um and here to talk about it is me trent uh me brushina and me mackenzie the three of us are going to be talking about sweat by lynn nottage we are actually producing the play currently brushina and i are co-directing and this is a fantastic play i mean pretty objectively it yes. won the pulitzer prize in 2017 lynn nottage is a prolific playwright but this is her most award-winning play um, and we have the pleasure of producing it and so we wanted to take today to really dive into it a little bit why do we love this play what does the play have to say what conversations does it start and so you know each of us have spent quite a bit of time with this script and we want to just kind of share some of our thoughts and insights and we don't know what each other has to say yet it's just going to kind of be a conversation that unfolds with you in the room with us yeah yeah so for <laughs> sheena why don't you kick us yes. off what is one of your like foremost thoughts or takeaways or favorite things oh my gosh okay um so i originally like heard about sweat in 2017 but i was graduating college and so like i heard about it in the theater scene and it was one of those everybody's got to see this play sort of thing um because it's it's from lynn nottage and it's winning the pulitzer like there was a lot of buzz around it and then um i just didn't hear about it for a while um and then Fast forward to last year, Trent came to me and was like, hey, you want to co-direct Sweat with me? I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of remember that play. Uh, and so I did some research on it and I was like, oh, yes, I definitely want to do this play. Um, and then reading it for the first time, I read it over Christmas break. And I was just like in tears by the end. <laughs> Um, this play is so, it's, I mean, everybody says timely, but it really is a timely play piece. Um, and there's so many themes to it. Um, one of the things that comes very interestingly to me, um, is this sort of like class solidarity. We normally think of that just only with like rich people, <laughs> Um, and how it's sort of a negative thing, but how it can also be in other classes. So like in the middle class sort of ideal, which is we're dealing right now with 
uh, in the play this like breakdown of the middle class and what that looks like and how those those things stretch and divide and so there's this very like strong class solidarity with everyone who's middle class and one of the things that sort of binds them together is being able to look down on the poorer class and that falls along racial lines in a couple of different ways and so what's interesting to me is that the black characters in the show seem to fall within that sort of like middle class solidarity and that's super interesting because I am a person who fights for inclusion and along all lines because I think that none of us are winning if some of us are losing Mm. Um, and so it's very interesting to me that the black characters in the show have this class solidarity and that they end up like participating in a lot of these like hateful sort of things in order to keep their class solidarity um and when it when a character of a different race and a different class enters that we have issues um and i think the sweat does a good job of like breaking down what that divide looks like and why it's harder to have solidarity along racial lines when we have such a strong class divide as well like it it brings up that issue sort of perfectly for me so like that's that's one of my biggest takeaways which Mm -hmm. I don't know that we always like talk about that when we talk about sweat because there's a very obvious (laughs) issue within the show about like racism um and I think it could be it can be hard to be like well why don't the black characters like side with the one Colombian character why don't they defend him? And it's because there is that like class solidarity. Like they are strictly middle class. He is poor. So he is lower class than them. And it is harder to find empathy for somebody who is trying to muscle into your class, which is kind of how they see it. So I love that aspect of the show. I think it's super interesting and, you know, wanted to start us off heavy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I'm glad you did. That's why that's why I love the play. Mm-hmm. Um, for a little bit of context, the middle class workers that mm-hmm. Rashina is talking about in this particular case are factory workers. Mm-hmm. So the play takes place in in small town Pennsylvania and in, in Reading, mm-hmm. and so most in of the two thousand. Yeah, so this is before this like is turn of the century, yeah. and so what is happening is that it's pointing to a time in history in which these factory jobs started to disappear because corporations started to send them overseas in order to save money, right? Because of NAFTA. And so it becomes really interesting Mm -hmm. because these people who, in our current economy, you would think of factory workers probably as lower class, not Mm -hmm. middle class, right? Mm -hmm. So it's actually really interesting because it takes us back just far enough in history where we we see how we ended up where we are now, right? So -hmm. these middle class workers look down on this lower class worker, but we, you know, 20 years in the future know that they're going to end up right where he is, Mm -hmm. which makes it even more interesting to me. Um, and you mentioned like the fall, the demise of the middle class. I think that this play points to that. And it's interesting because the tendency of human beings is to turn on people who they have easy access to, right? It's easy. It's so much easier to blame the guy across the street 
mm-hmm. than it is to blame an idea, right? Yeah. No one wants to blame capitalism or the people who are at like mm-hmm. the top tier of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, there are always conversations around ethical capitalism. And it's not to say that it can't exist because it can. Mm-hmm. And we have increasing numbers of examples of companies who are trying really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Not enough of them. But it's interesting because I think the tendency of people is to just turn on each other. Yeah. Because it's easier, right? It is. I mean, we've been taught that like there should be a physical manifestation of the person who's doing this thing to us. And so like when like this goes back into corporations being people sort of thing, a corporation is not actually a person. Mm-hmm. So I can't go to a corporate office and be like, this is this is the thing that's responsible there's no face to it i can't get angry at that but i can get angry at the guy that they just hired to replace me yep because he's right there in front of me at the same time yeah well and i can't do anything to the owner right like i can't just i don't know where the ceo lives he Mm -hmm. doesn't even probably live in this city Mm -hmm. right so if i want to lash out at someone i don't have an avenue to lash out at whose fault it actually is, even if I deep down know that the guy who took my job isn't to blame, Mm -hmm. but he still took my job, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, even going further, like you were saying that this this, uh, idea's being manifest sort of a thing, Um, something that I think Lynn does super well in this play too is show that politics affects our lives no matter if you get involved or not. That's so good. because they so this is all sparked by NAFTA, NAFTA, yes. um which the North American Trade Federal uh, Trade Agreement. Federal Trade Agreement. Yep. Thank you. Um uh, and basically it was the beginning of uh, all these companies saying that well we can ship out overseas. And it'll be much cheaper for us because we don't have to pay American wages at these companies anymore. Um, And that, like, that's a political idea that everyone in this play kind of ignored or didn't really know about. Like, Mm -hmm. they're not involved in politics. They're not not talking about, like, let's get out and vote sort of thing. They're just like, I just want to work. And then I want to go to the bar and have a beer. And then I want to go home and Mm -hmm. relax. Or I want to take a vacation. Like, they're living their lives they're not involved in politics but this one decision just one decision immediately affects them in ways that they couldn't have predicted yeah um they even laugh about it a little bit in the show they're Mm -hmm. like nafta that sounds that sounds crazy like that sounds so silly and then it turns out to be the thing that like destroys their way of life so it's it brings to the forefront that like we all are affected by politics. Yeah. And I think that that idea is why the play feels so relevant still. Right. Mm-hmm. So the play is set in 2000, but Lynn not wrote it in 2017. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, all those years later, it was still relevant. And f- five years later, it's still really relevant. And we're mm-hmm. in Waco, Texas. Factory jobs are not as relevant here. Mm-hmm. Unionization in that sense is not as relevant here. Mm-hmm. But there's still this idea of, like what you're saying, politics affecting everyday lives. Mm-hmm. The idea of capitalism 
implying that there are those who have taking advantage of those who have not and how do communities deal with that. Relatedly, Mackenzie and I actually had a, an interesting conversation about how England went crazy for this play, you know? And yeah. so in the same way that like Texas is not the same as Pennsylvania, but it still resonates here. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. I mean, a whole different country, a whole different way of economizing, but it still resonates. Mm-hmm. What What is that about? I mean, I just think it, it further emphasizes the idea that this play is like quite universal in a very human and relatable experience. Um, I, I, and of course, like England, it's, it's also in a very post-industrial era as well. Um, and England is very big on um, unions and stuff like that's a hot topic over here. And so I think that um, the themes of this play are particularly applicable over here. Um, it won major awards from like everything, there's been multiple major productions. I don't have the list in front of me of them, but it like received very, very wonderful reviews over here and was very well accepted, which I found really interesting because like it's set in rural America. You really wouldn't think that that would like translate well to the international stage because there's like really niche references to like American things. Um, But American theater tends to do really well over in the UK. So I just thought that that was super fascinating. Yeah. I think what's I honestly like have a theory that like the uh, I think it did well over in in England because they saw in real time what was happening. Mm. And I think it sort of like intersects with they can't imagine what would happen if their unions were to be broken up the way that ours have been, basically, because like we Mm. still have unions, but for factory workers, they're not as effective because then the jobs will just be like, well, we'll just ship out to a different country and pay less. And there's nothing that the unions can do to stop them, really. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's the thing is, like, it took away the recourse for our unions to actually be effective. Yeah. So it was uh-huh. effectively just like a mass union buster effort sort of thing. And it worked. Like we we don't have the factory presence that we used to. Wages have gone down. Like we talk so much about the divide between the middle class and the rich and it it literally has just gotten worse since the 2000s. And we talk every day about like how could we bridge that gap? How can we fix this? Well, we could have fixed this a long time ago had somebody been looking at the fine print of that agreement and going, you know what, I don't think some of this is great for unions. Let's talk about that. Let's try to fix that. But nobody did that. So like we're we're kind of stuck right now yeah. un- until we can, we're until we're able to like go back and come up with something that works better. Um, and I think that England really can't imagine that because their unions are so strong like i didn't realize how strong european unions are until i was looking at um somebody did a compare and contrast on tiktok about if elon musk were to buy a company in europe (laughs) and i was like oh my gosh they have so many protections like you can't when you acquire a company you can't even fire anybody for the first like 60 days or something i think like it's they have a protection where they go okay you want to fire this person well we have to do a review we have to see if they actually need to be fired and even then like we have to make sure that we honor their severance package to the letter like there's there's so much protection there that like i i understand the joke now that's really hard to fire people (laughs) 
yeah. in Europe. I, I was like, wow, that's amazing. They have protected time off. You can't yeah. mandate that they can't use their sick time like at any time that they want. You just take your time off. Like I was like, oh my god, we really do live in a hellscape here in the U.S. Like this is this is bad. So I I think that's kind of why it would be super fascinating to them is that like they couldn't believe that somebody would let this happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I also think like it's what we keep talking about, right? That the more specific a story is, the more universal it becomes, mm-hmm. right? So even though it's very specifically one community in rural Pennsylvania. It's a story about humans, yeah. and people can really connect with various of those characters. Kinsey, what is your standout or your favorite or your takeaway or your, um, I don't know, you can critique a Pulitzer Prize winning play if you want to. I, I, I'll give you that option. But no! <laughs> Y'all can't that see it. Not my agenda. Oh, okay. Um, well, what, what is your agenda then? <laughs> um, okay, so obviously I'm doing a theater history English degree right now, and so I approach this play from a very like literary perspective. Um, and I think what really like stood out to me is just the way that it like represents, I think, tragedy in a post. Um, oh my gosh, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Aristotelian, Arist- yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna try. Yeah, and like a post like idea of like what tragedy should be on stage because like we have like with Brecht and Arthur Miller like the deconstruction of what tragedy should be because like the Greeks were like oh no a king has to fall from grace but Arthur Miller was like no it's more tragic if it's an everyman play and it's your next door neighbor like death of a salesman um and so i was just very struck by the tragic nature of this play and how it is really quite impactful because it is a tragedy because it is relatable to us yeah so mm-hmm. i think that's super interesting i let's break it down a little bit De- like de- define tragedy right for us like what makes a tragedy and wh- then so then why would you put sweat into this category because it's well it's not a comedy right so defi- <laughs> but defi- yeah. for real like define tragedy i think we throw that word around but i yeah. don't think everyone knows like what that actually means mm-hmm. and it has to be something yeah. other than not a comedy <laughs> right right so what so what how would you define a tragedy like loosely mm. how how do you decide if a play fits that mold or not mm. um I think there has to be like a major reckoning crisis of some sort that really forces people's perspectives to change, mm-hmm. usually with um, an extremely like harmful negative event occurring, which could be in the sense of Greek tragedy, war, or like this um, capitalism and like people losing jobs and stuff. Like I think there's it's a vast scale of that, um, but I think 
there has to be a moment of like catharsis. I do agree with mm. that take. Um, but I think there has to be like a central tragic figure who is forced to take a step back and reflect or not even like a single person, but like people to take a step back and reflect and recognize problems and they have to go through trials. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good working definition. Mm -hmm. um, you have people who have a certain level of homeostasis, right? Um, the, the, you know, things are rolling and we're just moving along and then something happens, right? And then usually after the something happens, there's an even bigger something that happens later. The, you know, like mm -hmm. the tragic moment that you referred to. And yeah. then, yeah, there's learning and there's changing and catharsis. And that can look like a lot of different things. And I think that's where it gets really interesting is how the author like brings it to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, so what, I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but so in reading Sweat, what was so interesting about the way the, uh, the playwright, Lynn Nottage, used this kind of tragic function as a vehicle for the story? Um, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, spoiler alert. No, continue. No, no. <laughs> I just, I, I just found the last scene to be particularly striking. Um, just the way the characters are directly faced with the consequences of their actions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. But no, I think that's good, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's a fair take on mm -hmm. the play. And mm -hmm. I, I think that the characters... Here's what's... Okay. Here's what's interesting about the play, all right? The very first scene of the whole play gives you a window into the consequences that two of the characters have faced. It's not a spoiler alert, particularly. It happens literally immediately. Yeah. But two of the characters in the opening scene are on parole. Mm -hmm. So you know from the beginning of the play that people have ended up in prison. Mm -hmm. So you know before anything else happens that that's where it's heading. Mm -hmm. But then as the play moves forward, the thing that you expect to happen is not the thing that happens. Nope. And that's what's so interesting. And it's what Lynn Nottage has done so beautifully well is that it leads up to, frankly, a natural conclusion, but mm. not the one that you thought was going to happen. Yeah. And so it subverts your expectations. The tragic event that occurs mm. is not the one that you're thinking was going to occur, mm -hmm. which makes the catharsis all the more rewarding because you're sh like you as a reader, as an audience member are shaken mm -hmm. right along with the characters because it's frankly not what they expected to happen either. Nope. And so then that reckoning that you're talking about is like felt so much harder. And I, yeah. So I think mm -hmm. tragedy is the appropriate category, but, and I think Lynn Nonage, like you're saying, has subverted some of those tragic expectations um, and made it something really unique, literarily speaking, not even just thematically unique, but literarily, it is a unique story. It is. It is. And she even, like, now that you were talking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, she does something very interesting with explaining why stints in prison, like, sort of stunt. Mm. your growth because we start off with you know these two have not been 
out of prison in eight years. Yeah. And in eight years, the world has changed. I mean, like 2000 to 2008, that was a time of extreme growth. Like we have the computer. We go from flip phones to iPhones within that time. We go from, uh, you know, uh, big desktop computers to laptops in that time. We get, I think the first iPad like came out Mm -hmm. in that time. So there's just technologically, we get this like massive change. And then they went in thinking that like oh you know the unions are going to prevail and then they come out to the unions are super did not prevail (laughs) (laughs) um and that like wages have taken a hit across the board because they've taken out that middle that big part of the middle class well and an even bigger hit 2008 was the recession yeah so like they're they're coming out into crazy times and they really are having trouble like navigating this new world that they've mm-hmm. entered. And I don't think that's something that we can always put on stage very well. Like, yeah. I don't know that it's been done very well explaining why it's so hard for inmates to reconnect when they come outside. Um, and that's why we have such, we talk about recidivism rates all the time, but we don't necessarily have an understanding of why that's happening. Yeah. And it's because when you live on the inside, things don't change. They basically stay the same and it's understandable. And when you come out, it's a completely new world. So I love that she does that as well. I think that's very interesting. It is. And it's such a good subplot, Mm -hmm. right? And it really rings true. There's one of the two characters literally says that like for right now, his best place, his best choice is that someone gave him a tent Mm -hmm. and he's like camping with someone in the woods and like that's where he's living currently Mm -hmm. because he literally like can't handle civilization basically Um, it it is hard finding a job and figuring out just life Mm -hmm. you haven't had to pay bills or worry about rent or get up for work i mean your whole life has been determined for you for eight years Mm -hmm. and then you're expected to just like roll out into the real world and like be fine Mm -hmm. it act when you i mean it actually is insane (laughs) when you think about it it is it absolutely is no i'm a i'm a reform person i'm like we need to actually like if we have if we have some, if we have people that need reforming, we need to actually make sure they're getting the reform that they yeah. need, the help that they need, instead Me and of just. Have to be careful here. We're about to get on a whole soapbox. <laughs> you mean you think that we should be moving toward restorative justice instead of punitive justice? That's crazy. Yes. Yes. Okay, you heard it here. For, you heard it here first. Um, maybe we'll find a play to talk about where we can get on that soapbox, but not today. Um, yes, I I really like both things that y'all have brought up. I've been trying to think about what my thing would be that I would say, and mm-hmm. I keep bouncing around between a lot of things. Um, but I think that maybe where I'll land, since Brishina really brought up the the issue of class, which I think is maybe the most interesting thing about the play, um, I think maybe I'll like bring it back full circle and talk about race a little bit because Mm -hmm. I think that that's present in there. I think it's interesting because I think in many ways, like you said, it's not actually like the core of the show, right? Mm -hmm. I think the core really is this issue of class and wanting to maintain one's class and looking down Mm -hmm. on someone who threatens one's class, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But there is 
very definitively also a component of racism, Mm -hmm. right? And there's the racism of all of the characters towards the Colombian character, but then also within the middle class contingent of people, there's racism towards the African-American characters, right? Mm -hmm. One of the African-American women in the show gets a promotion. Mm -hmm. Well, in her bestie doesn't really like that very much Mm -hmm. and she actually goes so far as to say that she got the promotion because she's black and the company wants to be diverse Mm -hmm. um which is like still something we hear today yeah oh that's not going away no it's not (laughs) but what's crazy is that it's not that's not like a moment in time Mm -hmm. that's an ongoing conversation that we're having about how people really have the audacity to say that people of color are not being promoted based on their merits but simply for optics Mm -hmm. and yeah well Mm -hmm. i that's all i'm gonna say at this moment (laughs) i'd love for you to weigh in on it but that's that's one of the things that i think we can't talk about this play and not talk about yeah oh absolutely i mean so as a black woman i I was getting ready to go into or getting ready to apply to colleges when the Abigail case for UT came up, Mm -hmm. which was like a Supreme Court case. And it was this white girl (laughs) in Texas who uh, she uh, I forget what her last name is, but it was Abigail something Something versus. (laughs) Yeah. um, Versus. uh, UT and basically she came up with this argument that the girl who got her slot was um, an affirmative action um, student basically she said that like oh she didn't have you know she didn't get it she didn't get in based on her merit she got in because they have to have a certain quota because of affirmative action and that was there was nothing farther from the truth. Like everyone who got into UT that year was incredibly qualified. Um, all then they did an interview. I remember I forget which news uh, outlet it was, but one of them decided to actually do an interview with the black women who would have been in her class had she gotten in, but she didn't. And they were talking about like. Actually, I did a lot to get into UT. I made sure that I was in extracurriculars. I did sports. I did Girl Scouts. I did um, after school Bible study. I worked my ass off to get here and make sure that I could be here. So for her to say that I'm just in a just because of affirmative action, I'm here is trash. And it was it was such a like cool moment for me because I was like, oh, that's still happening. Um, which like that was that's also wrapped in like the the post-racial generation BS that I also grew up in, um, which was that, you know, we're a generation that doesn't see race and we're just going to move past that sort of thing. And we we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. That's not at all what happened. <coughs> Sorry if you so. hear me coughing. It's because I'm choking on all the racism. <laughs> so it was I loved that this play talked about it. I also loved that. um Something that we talk about a lot, especially now as we talk about um, diversity and inclusion, is race solidarity. And that means siding, like being on the side of other people who are people of color. 
um, because so far, so long, uh, they've been white people have kind of been able to divide and conquer and go like, well, these are Asian people, and so they have a they have an issue with black people, and they should have issues. And then these are Latino people, and they should have an issue with black people and Asian people. So then we should be you know divided along those lines. And there was a big pull in the 1960s um, during. Uh, civil rights during the civil rights movement to have race solidarity um, and to say that like hey none of us are really assimilating into whiteness <laughs> we are all just being crapped on um, and you know it's time for us to get together and of course that was squashed by murder um, of most of the civil rights leaders of the era um, so now there is a whenever we come into conversations about diversity and inclusion there is a big big push to basically like revive the poor people's agenda um from the 1960s and say that like we should be uh a, have solidarity along racial lines um not necessarily class lines so it's it's a talk that has been in the works for a long time i think lynn put it in such an interesting way in the show where the two black characters feel like they've gotten into something and they want to hold on to that because it's so hard to first off be black and then be poor and so at least having money like yes I'm always going to be black but at least having money I can at least buy my way into some places I've at least entered this sort of like exclusive club that I can feel a little bit safer about my position in. And when somebody else is trying to encroach on that, which like the character of Chris says a really says a really good line in the show where he's like talking about um, Oscar, who's a Colombian character. He's like, he's just trying to hustle like we are. He's just trying to make a dollar the same way that we are. I think he sees that like, this is not Oscar's fault. Mm-hmm. But Oscar is the one in front of me who I can pin this on. And so, like, he he tries to say that, like, listen, it's not his fault. Like, we need to we need to come together on our own sort of thing. But everybody's just too angry to see past that. And it's, again, like poor white people being snowed by rich white people into thinking that your issue is with the the people of color on the bottom mm-hmm. when the, they don't have any power <laughs> your issues with the people at the top you got to look up not down um so but yeah i think the the racial issue in the show is very interesting because it's tied up heavily in that class issue and that's so true to real life um it's it's super hard to get people to abandon their class i think it's harder to get people to abandon class because money is such a necessary Mm. commodity that when you have it you want to protect it because it means security it means so many things um so it's it's very interesting but i resonated heavily um with the show um especially with cynthia because she goes through i think the brunt of it Mm mm-hmm in that her best friend turns on her and is like, well, you only got this because you're black. And, you know, being at Baylor, I always knew that there were people who were looking at me like, "Mm, you don't belong here. 
sort of thing. And, you know, they they had their preconceived notions about why I was there. But that's what happens when you go to a southern college, a southern private college <laughs> in the middle of the of uh, Texas. So, you know, like that. I had issues with that while I was there, but I never let that stop me. And Cynthia doesn't let it stop her either. Mm. She just like keeps going. Like it hurts her for a bit and she really doesn't want it to be true. She really doesn't want her friend to take it there, Yeah. but she realizes that I've got to move on anyway and just let her be who she is. So it's, I like it. In other words, we recognize, we recommend this play to you. Yes. wholeheartedly <laughs> yes if you please haven't read it. read it you should read it if you are in or near Waco yes. February 16th through 19th come see this production yes. if, if possible plays are intended to be seen and not just read yes. um, I mean reading a play is fantastic and people should read more plays frankly yes. but <laughs> Ultimately, they're intended to be viewed and embodied. So if you can join us, you should. Mm -hmm. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning play for a reason, for many of the reasons that we've mentioned today and others. It truly is a literary masterpiece. It really takes slice of life type work. And takes it to a new level. These are just people living their lives. And then, as Mackenzie pointed out, tragedy strikes, right? But it takes that slice of life component to get to a tragic place. Because you have to have that homeostasis. And you have these characters who are just living in this town and working their job and drinking with their friends. Mm -hmm. And then something happens. And it's not what you're going to expect in the end. So mm -hmm. literarily, it's beautiful. And then thematically, it just gives you so much to chew on. We've talked about issues of class and we've talked about issues of race and then even underneath that layer there's issues like our prison system and who what is a community's responsibility when things like this go wrong and how do you take care of each other and not point fingers i mean there's so much to conversate about with a play like this um but i think we are going to try and bring this conversation to an end so that maybe you can start some conversations of your own with some other people in person yeah but for today thank you for listening to us talk about sweat it is a play that we love and we thank lynn nottage for writing it yes thank you so much lynn <laughs> but for today think oh before i end us Mackenzie, tell us where they can find out more about us i almost forgot your favorite part oh my goodness Follow us on Instagram at Imagine This Theater Pod, theater with an R E, or at Wild Evenings Waco. That's also our website. Or you can find us through our wonderful producers, Rogue Media Networks. And today, thank you for joining us to Imagine This. Mm -hmm.